0: What is the third door and how can you take advantage of it? My guest, Alex Benayan, will describe it better than me, but think of getting into uh, a nightclub. The first door is all the people who are lined up hoping to get in. The second door is for the VIP celebrities, people who have already made it and they just walk right in. The third door is the door where you use all your creative, out-of-the-box thinking, being entrepreneurial, and you figure out a new, unique way to get to your goal. Alex has certainly had that adventure. He set himself a mission when he was just 18 years old to interview many amazing successful people in life, people like Bill Gates. He wanted to interview Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg, Lady Gaga, Maya Angelou, Quincy Jones and on and on and on. This is his story and how he got such amazing interviews and what he learned from them along the way, particularly this concept of the third door. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. You have such a fascinating story, and I love the book, The Third Door. I don't even know where to begin. So Price is Right. First, you hacked the Price is Right, and then you got started interviewing you've interviewed some of the most amazing people on the planet and you're, it's interesting how your book is not so much about the interviews but your journey in going from being this like 19 year old kid to just within a few years getting the best mentors in the world interviewing some of the most fascinating people in the world including you know bill gates lady gaga maya angelou so many others there's, I, there's a thousand who didn't you interview <laughs> actually, actually, from the book, did you ever interview Mark Zuckerberg? I can't remember. You didn't, I don't think no, you ever interviewed Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg. No, the
1: Zuckerberg um, that ended with uh, me threatening to go to the police. So, no, so the Zuckerberg didn't work out. Um, Buffett was a giant train wreck in the end. Um, so, half of them worked out, and the other half, uh, I almost got myself in jail. So, you can take it or leave it how it turned out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because you tell the story of interviewing Tim Ferriss and how you you managed to interview him, and and we'll describe some of the techniques you have, like the inside man, the third door, and your particular brand of persistence. But Tim kind of warned you you may be a little too persistent, and we saw that uh, with the in in the case of you trying to interview Buffett and and a few others. But first, tell me about the Price Is Right. I want to win a game show. What should I do?
1: How how yeah, there's the two minute version, the twenty minute version. Um, you know, it's up to you how, you know, how much in
0: depth you want to go. Well, you, you had free tickets to go to the prices, right? And you figured out that the most flashy personalities would get called down and you got some advice right beforehand to underbid, uh, in order to get Uh to be one of the main contestants in the showcase showdown. But what was the part that you feel like you hacked it?
1: I had a problem, which was you know, I had this big dream to write this book I was dreaming of reading. But, you know, I didn't have the money. I was buried in student loan debt, so there had to be some other way to make some quick cash. So like a normal 18-year-old, I thought, well, what do I just go on a game show and hack the game show and win some money? So this is my freshman year final exams, two days before finals. I'm in the library, and I see somebody offering free tickets to the game show The Price is Right. And you know, as you know, it's the longest running game show in American history. But I had another problem. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's the longest running game show in American history, and on top of it, it looks—at least for me—whenever I would see bits and pieces of it on TV, it looked pretty easy. You know, James, come on down. And you know, how much does this cost? A gallon of milk? I don't know, two bucks, three bucks. It's not what it seems, and I—I w- I would find out much later when I was in a bad situation that it's not what it seems. But I had this thought of what if I go on the show and win some money and fund this book that I was dreaming of reading. And essentially what happened is I decided you know to pull an all-nighter to study but not to study for finals but to study how to hack the prices right. And I woke up the next morning You know, I pulled this all-nighter, and this is what I learned in the all-nighter that actually really helped. You know, going to your question of what the hack was. I spent all night Googling, you know, how to get onto the show The Price is Right. I had the tickets, but I just assumed there had to be more than just getting tickets and randomly hoping they called you down. You know, I just believe in life. Everything has a system, and you just got to sort of figure it out. And about the 23rd O of Google, you know, deep into a Google search, I saw someone on those old web blogs. Where remember it was just all back in the day it was just all comments back and forth back and forth. Sure. And I and I saw a comment that said in addition to the casting producer there's an undercover producer. And as soon as I figured that out I realized the 4 hours they make you wait in line outside of the studio although you're being interviewed by a casting producer for 30 seconds it's not a 30-second interview. It's a four-hour interview. So once I knew that, you know, I'm rolling up to the Price is Right studio the next morning. I'm flirting with the parking lot attendants. I'm dancing with the custodians. I'm breakdancing in the hallways, and I don't know how to break dance. You know, I'm sort of being ridiculous for four hours straight. But about halfway through, I finally get my turn in line, and I see my guy. You know, it's Stan, the casting producer. And I had done my research the night before, and I had learned everything I could possibly learn about Stan. I knew where he went to school. I knew where he grew up, and I knew that he has a clipboard, but it's never in his hands. I knew that his clipboard was in the hands of his assistant who sits about 20 feet af- away from him. And If Stan likes you, he'll turn around and wink at his assistant, and she'll put your name on the clipboard. So, If The Price is Right was a nightclub, if you're not on Stan's list, you're not getting on the show. So the stakes are very high. And sure enough, before I knew it, you know, Stan was right in front of me. And he's like, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Where do you do? And I'm like, oh, hey, you know, I'm Alex. I'm 18 years old. I'm, you know, I'm a pre-med in college. And he goes, oh, pre-med, you must spend a lot of time studying. You know, how do you have time to watch The Price is Right? And I go, oh, is that where I am? You know, (laughs) Horrible joke. Like, James, you're laughing more than he laughed. You know, horrible joke. I I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm grateful you like my humor. So he didn't. So I start seeing his eyes wandering. And in one of these business books I had read at the time, it had said that human contact speeds up a relationship. So I had an idea. I needed to touch Stan. Stan. But the only problem was I was behind this metal railing and he was about 20 feet away. So I'm like, Stan, come over here. I want to make a handshake with you. And, you know, he very reluctantly came over and I taught him how to, you know, pound it and blow it up. And he laughed a little and he said, good luck. And he starts walking away and he doesn't look at his assistant. She doesn't write anything down. And just like that, you know, I knew it was over. And it was one of those moments where you can sort of see everything that you've been working toward just sort of slip through your fingers like sand. And the worst part is, you know, you didn't even have a chance to really prove yourself. So I don't know what got into me, but it's almost as if all this pent-up frustration began combusting in the pit of my stomach. And I started yelling uncontrollably at the top of my lungs. You know, stay. And, you know, the whole audience, you know, shoots their head around wondering what's happening. And I just keep yelling. I'm like, Stan. And he runs over. and He's like, are you okay? What's going on? And I have no idea what I'm going to say. But all I know is I'm back in business. He's standing right in front of me. And I just, you know, look at him, you know, in this panic. And, you know, he's very typical Hollywood, you know, black turtleneck, you know, goatee, red scarf. And I'm just looking at him and I'm just like, you're a scarf. And now I really don't know what I'm going to say next. So, you know, he's just staring at me. I'm sweating, and the only thing I can think of is I look at him with all the seriousness I can, and I just go, Stan, I'm an avid scarf collector. I have 360 pairs in my dorm room, and I'm missing that one. Where did you get it? And he starts laughing now. He gives me his scarf. He's like, look, you deserve this more than I do. He's laughing even more. He turns around, and his assistant writes something on the clipboard. So that's where that went. So you knew you were in. Well, I knew that I made it by the casting producer. I still didn't know what happened with the undercover producer. But about 10 minutes later, I see someone sort of planted in the line, this woman with you know long brown hair and with a little badge sticking out of her pocket. And she kept staring at people and walked through the line. I figured, yeah, she's gotta be it. So I start you know dancing and like, uh, again, break dancing even more. And I don't know how to break dance. And she starts laughing even more. She looks at my name badge. She takes out a sheet of paper in her pocket and she makes another check mark. And that's when I felt on top of the world. But it was about 30 seconds later that I remembered I had spent the entire night before studying how to hack getting onto the show. I still didn't know how to play. But, you know, no big deal. I just, you know, I still had an hour left until the show started. I just took out my phone and Googled how to play The Price Is Right, and I figured you know someone must have explained this online. About thirty seconds into using my phone, security taps my shoulder and takes my phone away. Really? Yeah. So at
0: this point now, because you know, my, is that because they were taking everyone's phone away? Or everyone's phone.
1: It? it was it was sort of one of those uh, you know now it's very famous at comedy shows you have to lock up your phone, but The Price yeah. Is Right was a real innovator back then. <laughs> you know, taking away everyone's phone. So my phone gets taken away. You know, I had seen bits and pieces of the show as a kid. I'd never seen a full episode before. And now, you know, sort of everything's on the line to get the money to fund this book, and I have no idea how to play. And I just essentially sit down on this bench and start sulking, um, feeling like I just ruined everything. And I was sitting next to this old lady with, you know, white hair, And she could tell I was a bit upset, so she asked me what was wrong, and I just sort of told her the truth. I told her about my dream, and I told her about finals, and I told her about my phone being taken away. And she just sort of pinched my cheeks, and she's like, honey, you remind me of my grandson. And I asked her for some advice, and I asked her if she's seen the show before. She's like, honey, I've been watching the show for 40 years. And she ends up giving me 40 years of wisdom in about two minutes. And this light bulb flicks off in my head. You know, I give her a big hug. I say, thank you. And then I turn to the person next to me. And I'm like, hey, I'm Alex. I've never seen the show before. Do you have any advice? And end up spending the next hour crowdsourcing the wisdom of about half the audience. And right then, the doors to the studio open. And, you know, I step in and the place smells like the 1970s. You know, the same chairs, the same flashing lights. All that's missing is a, you know, disco ball. And I sit down, and very quickly, those very iconic words blast through the speakers. You know, live from CBS Studio in Hollywood, it's The Price is Right. And, you know, they called on the first contestant, and it's not me. And they called on the second contestant, it's not me. They called on the third contestant, it's not me. And for the fourth, you know, I feel it coming, and I literally lift out of my chair, and it's not me. And, uh, you know, I sink back in my chair and think, you know, maybe it just wasn't meant to be. You know, I have finals tomorrow. Maybe I was not supposed to go on the show. And sure enough, as you know, how the show works is four people get called down. One moves on, which now means there's an empty space at a podium. So it's time for the fifth contestant. And that's when I hear, Alex Benayan, come on down. And I lose my shit. You know, I... There's no way you can be cool and stay calm in that moment. You know, I'm hugging strangers. I'm dancing with old ladies. I get down to the podium, and they essentially go, you know, a new leather chair in Ottoman. You know, I'm 18. I don't even know what Ottoman means. <laughs> so, and, you know, again, I'm a freshman in college at the time. Means. Yeah, I'm a freshman in college at the time. I don't even know how much milk costs, and I'm thinking – I don't know how much is a chair. And I'm like, you know, $300. And the whole audience laughs at me because they they know my situation and they know I'm sort of an idiot. So they're all laughing and everyone guesses. And, you know, I lose that round. But sure enough, the next round comes around a new billiards table. I don't know. My cousins have a billiards table. You know, how expensive could it be? So I'm like, $600. And again, the audience laughs really loud this time. But because they laugh so loud, the other contestants bid higher and higher and higher. So they all overbid, which if you know the price right, means they get disqualified. So I won by default. So I'm jumping up and down. I'm running on the stage. What was the price of a billiard table? I think it was maybe like 1500 or something like that. Okay. But again, as I watched the tape, the audience's laugh was so loud. It scared the other contestants to go the complete other direction. Uh, so in some ways, people thinking I was an idiot started working in my favor. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's always a good thing to happen. So I end up getting on the stage and, you know, again, I barely know how the show worked. I asked the host, Drew Carey, you know, what do I win? And he's like, you win the billiards table. I was like, okay, cool, great. So now it's time for the bonus round. And, you know, the doors open up and there's this like glistening hot tub. With you know twelve jets, LED lights, a waterfall, and all I can think is if I win this hot tub, I am the king of college. <laughs> so you know all the pressure is on, and I think I guess maybe like two thousand dollars for the hot tub. It was four thousand dollars, so I lose the hot tub, and I think I'm pretty much done with the show. And they go, "We'll be right back with the wheel." And I ask them like, "Who spins the wheel?" And they're like. Who spins? You spin. So, you know, as you know, with the prices, right, three people get to spin this giant wheel. And it's like a giant slot machine. The numbers are 1 to 100, and if you get closest to 100, you win. So, you know, after commercial break, the first lady goes up. She gives it a spin, you know, tick, 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 tick. 80. And even I know that's an unbelievable spin. So she's jumping up and down. She goes to the winner circle, now it's my turn. And I just give it a, you know, I hold on tight. And it's a lot heavier than it looks. And I give it a spin. Tick, 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 tick. 85. And the audience goes berserk because they know I have no idea what's going on. So they're, you know, they're loving this. So the audience is going nuts. I move to the winner's circle. The final woman goes up. She spins. She's out. So I end up winning. And I'm jumping up and down thinking I just won the entire show. And they go, we'll be right back with well, the second half of the price is right. Don't go away. So I get moved over to the side, and I watch the second half flashback. And I find out who's going up against me in the final round. And her name is Tanisha, and she blasted through the second half of the prices right as if she has been walking through Costco her entire life studying price tags. She won the opening round. She won the bonus round. And on the wheel, she spun a perfect 100. This oh was, gosh. you know, like David going up against Goliath. I'd never seen anything like this. She's been watching Wait. the show nonstop.
0: The wheel, though, is a luck component, right? Or did she have some skill? She had <laughs> expertise and luck on her side,
1: apparently. Huh. She, a perfect 100 means you win a bonus cash prize. That's how good she was. She was just on fire. So it's now the commercial break before the final round. And, you know, I believe in karma to some degree. So, you know, I step onto the stage and I, you know, reach out my hand and I wish her good luck. And she looks me up and down and she goes, yeah, you'll need it. So the whole audience is like, oh, wow. shit. She's, it's
0: She's gaming you. She's yeah, like. Yeah,
1: it's going down. It's going yeah. down. You know, it's very heated on the stage of the prices right now. And I have like 60 seconds before it starts and I realize all the advice I got from the audience, no one gave me any advice on the final round because no one thought I'd make it this far. So I'm realizing I don't even know how the final round works. So I run over to the host of the show, which at the time was Drew Carey, and I just sort of give him this awkward hug, and I'm like, Drew, I loved you on whose line is it anyway? <laughs> Do you have any advice for me on, on how this uh, you know showroom showdown works? And he goes, first of all, it's called the showcase showdown. So, you know, clearly I don't even know what it's called. And he ends up giving me this great advice. And before I know it, I'm standing behind the podium. These white lights are shining in my eyes. You know, six machine gun-sized cameras are pointed at my face. I'm sweating. Tanisha's dancing. It's time for the final round. Uh, But this is the thing I couldn't have expected. You know, when you watch the show, James, on TV, it's actually not that hard of a game because you can hear the announcer perfectly through your TV. And you're sitting on your couch and you can guess. When you're standing on the stage, I don't know if they do it on purpose, but it is almost impossible to hear the announcer over the cheers of the audience. Plus, there's like 20 people filming you. It's, you know, it's very chaotic. And I'm, you know, 18 years old, and this is what I hear. Alex, your first prize is a trip to Six Flags Magic Mountain theme park, blah, 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 blah. You know, I don't really hear the rest. And I think, I don't know, how much does a theme park cost? hundred bucks. You know, I've been to a theme park before. So in my head, I guess a hundred bucks and then they move on to my next prize. A trip to Florida. Blah, 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 blah. You know, again, I don't hear the rest. I never bought a plane ticket in my life at that point, but I'm thinking how much is a trip to Florida? Like 200 bucks? So I guess 200 bucks in my head. What I didn't hear is that the trip to Florida was first class tickets, hotel, Rental car for two people. But I'm thinking 200 bucks. While you're in Florida, you're going to take a trip into zero gravity. Blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking, again, this must be another theme park. So I assume another $100. What I didn't know is that this is the zero-G experience, which is how NASA trains their astronauts. I would find out later, every 15 minutes in zero gravity is $5,000.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. So I can go down to Florida and go to NASA... Give Them five thousand dollars and they'll give me 15 minutes it's, of zero. Yeah, uh,
1: they take off at an airport next to the Kennedy Space Center, but yes, exactly. And it's I highly recommend it, it's very fun.
0: Um,
1: but in my head, I'm guessing a hundred bucks. And then they go for your grand prize, and you know, they open the big doors, a new sailboat, and you know, I'm freaking out and I'm not listening to any of the details, and I'm thinking. You know, from where I'm standing on this side of the stage, it actually looks pretty small. It sort of looks like a little dinghy. You know, how much does a dinghy cost? You know, $5,000, $4,000. What I didn't hear is that it was a Catalina Mark II sailboat, you know, 18-footer with a trailer and a cabin inside. And I'm thinking, you know, $5,000 tops. And they go, Alex, this will all be yours if the price is right. And, you know, if there was ever a moment in life where I needed to trust my gut. I thought it was this moment. And there was just one number that just felt right. So I lean into the microphone and I go, (laughs) $6,000. And the audience goes silent as if somebody just passed out on the stage. And I didn't really understand what was happening because, you know, they had been cheering for me most of the day. And I'm looking at the audience really confused. Then I realized the host of the show, Drew Carey, hasn't said anything. You know, you're supposed to lock in your answer. He hasn't said anything. So I look over to Drew Carey, and he's just looking at me like, and it finally hits me. And I just lean into the microphone, and I go, just kidding? And everybody like erupts in cheers. <laughs> and I'm, you know, he goes, Oh, college kids these days always messing around. You know, Alex, what's your real answer? And I'm thinking, Shit, that was my real answer. So I don't really know what to do. But I just overlook over at the audience and I just start pounding on the podium and I'm like, Audience, I need your help. And they start all chanting a single number. But. It's a mob, and I can't really hear them that clearly, and the producers are trying to get me to guess. And you're
0: allowed to do that? Like, you're allowed to ask yeah, you're Yeah, al-
1: you're allowed to crowdsource, but they sort of know it's near impossible because, I don't know, there's 300 people who barely know each other yeah. all shouting over each other. You're not getting much. But surprisingly, they were sort of on the same page. I started hearing this rhythm, and I heard like, 33, 33, you know, I, I could hear a TH sound pretty clearly. So I just sort of under pressure... Did my best answer. And I said, you know, Drew, I'm going with the audience, $3,000. <laughs> he grabs the microphone and goes, you know, there's a difference between 300 and 30,000, right? And I'm like, uh, of course I know that, you know, just kidding with you again. And he goes, great. We'll lock it in 30,000. Moving on. I look over at Tanisha. She looks like she's going up against someone in preschool. And, you know, it's Tanisha's turn, and she gets a car and a ATV and a trip to Arizona. And she guesses, I think, maybe like $35,000 for her prize. And now it's time to reveal the winner. Tanisha, you guessed $35,000. Retail price, 36400 And she jumps up in the air, you know, arms straight up to the ceiling, thanking God, because she just won a brand new car, essentially. Her friends are cheering and I'm instantly thinking if I go straight to the library right now, I still have two hours to study for bio, three hours for chemistry. Mom doesn't even need to know I was here. You know, I'm doing crisis management in my head because that finals the next morning.
0: Sweet. If she wins, meaning if she gets closer, she gets everything, but you get nothing. Correct. Okay. And she just pretty much
1: made it by 1,400, which is unheard of. It's like a, it's a three-point-or-nothing-but-net kind of guess. Uh, Alex, you guessed $30,000 retail price. Da-da-da-da. You know I'm not really listening because I've already mentally checked out. But I see the audience going crazier than they have all day. And I notice my podium is flashing. So I literally turn around to check it. I guess $30,000 retail price. 31200 And my face goes from this to,
0: ah! you know, I'm
1: freaking out. I'm jumping up and down. I'm dancing on the sailboat. I get the sailboat, sell the sailboat. And that's how I ended up funding the book, The Third Door.
0: And by funding, you mean you were able to travel around. You are able to, to go wherever you needed to go to find these amazing exactly. people and interview them. Now, Alex, it just so happens we brought tanisha on the podcast today (laughs) no i'm just kidding (laughs) that it
1: that would be like an episode of jerry's finger tanisha what do you have to say what did she have to say did you ever talk to her after that no there's a really funny screenshot of the episode that my friends took when it came out of me like jumping in the air in joy and tanisha looking like she just saw a tsunami no but she was a really good sport she was very kind and in reality she deserved to win she did so well.
0: so okay so now you've got this money you sell the sailboat you sell whatever you can you got this money You're still attending USC, uh, Mm -hmm. and but you really took an interesting path, which I think was common among the people you interview. Which is, you can't sort of take what one of your interviewees called the linear path, uh, Mm -hmm. which is college, job, promotions, success, and then you achieve these amazing Mm -hmm. out of the box things. You kind of have to do it in reverse and. You know, Again, there was this commonality. One thing I noticed that was common between everybody you interviewed, including some of the the mentors you mentioned in the book, is that there's sort of a fake it till you'll make it uh, kind of mentality. And I don't mean fake it in a fraudulent way, but sort of like, I I forget who it was, who who someone said, hey, if you're ever in uh, San Francisco, (laughs) stop on by. And they had no plans to go to San Francisco. They had never been there before. And they said... Right back. Oh, I'm there next week. Just by coincidence, I'll stop by. And so there's this mentality of like, just always jump through those hopes, always say yes. And, you know, even if it's, you know, don't ask permission, like, you know, it's sort of like take that leap into saying, yes, I can do this, you know, over promise and then show up. So, what were some of the things that you learn, at least in the beginning of trying to get these interviews with like Bill Gates or Buffett or Tim Ferriss or whatever. I, and and by the way, one other thing I want to ask, I'm sorry, you told that story very well. The Price is Right story. You told that very well. And I know in part it's because one of your initial mentors, Elliot Bisnow, who started the summit series of talks, he kind of told you over and over again, tell that story, tell that story, tell that story. And then he would comment on how you were telling the story. Like how much of what you just told me was advice that Elliot Bisnow gave you during this process of telling the story to all his friends. Well, when he sort of forced you to tell that story to everybody.
1: I think that's the value of a good mentor is that they can see things in you that you don't even know has any value. I remember my first year of going out and trying to get interviews, I would just tell people, you know, I have this dream to, you know, inspire my generation, would you please do an interview and I was just getting doors slammed on my face nonstop. I met this guy, Elliot Bisno, who started, like you said, the Summit Series Conference. And within my first hour of meeting him, he's just really good at sort of grilling people and pulling back the layers and finding out what their thing is. And like two hours into our first conversation, he asked me how I had money to even fly and get plane tickets. And I casually mentioned I went on a game show and used the money. And he said, we've been together for two hours and you've never brought that up? And he looked me in the eyes and he has these like searing eyes and he goes, you will never be in a meeting again without bringing that up in the beginning. And it just sort of was this mindset shift of like, oh, people find that interesting? Um, Which when you're 18 or 19, it's hard to tell. Uh, That sort of goes back to pitching. People don't really, a lot of people just talk about the specs of their hardware as opposed to the mission of the company, you know, basic things like that. Um, but to get to your original question, which is how these interviews came to be and how all these people who I went out to go interview, how they launched their dreams. You know, how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software, how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They're not as obvious of stories.
0: Yeah. But, but, but again, like, like Bill Gates, he he was selling basic to, for, to the MIT mm-hmm. for the MITS Altair. And they said, okay, we're going to buy basic from you. He didn't, he didn't he said, have it great done but he didn't <laughs> he hadn't done it and paul allen's getting on the plane to go to arizona and he had forgotten to write the loader which loads the program into the computer so he like writes it on the plane so there's all this sort right. of like yes before you before there's action
1: yes and i think what's important especially if i'm you know talking to someone young who might and sometimes misunderstand what that is it's not lying it's not taking advantage of someone um uh, If anything, people who do do that don't have a career. They get caught pretty quickly, and they don't have a career. You failed. Congratulations. Um, What that is is a bit of, you know, jumping out of a parachute and building your parachute on the way down. Uh, So integrity is really important if you do want to not only be a good person, but have a a lengthy career. Uh, But, you know, for better or for worse, and I I don't – condone it. Just the reality is when you study even Maya Angelou or Spielberg or Bill Gates, there were these little gray areas that they use in order to just get their foot in the door to prove that they had the goods and actually deliver value.
0: With every single one of the people you interviewed, there was some component of that.
1: Well, I think the reality is, um, kids stretch the truth a little. Teenagers stretch the truth. Um, You know, what I have noticed is that they all in their 20s started realizing the value of integrity and uh, shed that part of their personality. But yeah, a lot of these people got their starts when they were teenagers um, or in their 20s. And they, they did shed one of my favorite stories that to me is the ultimate third door story of someone launching their career comes from Steven Spielberg. And this story to me just has all of the elements that's applicable to whether you work in sales, entrepreneurship, if you're a writer, author, filmmaker, musician, you have to have a moment like this. So, this story comes from early on in Spielberg's career. And what a lot of people know about Spielberg is that, you know, He made Jaws and Schindler's List and Indiana Jones. But what most people don't know is that when he first applied to film school as a teenager, he didn't get in.
0: Really? I didn't know that.
1: He didn't get in. He applied to USC film school and didn't get in. But no big deal. He's obviously persistent, so he applied a second time. And he still didn't get in. And that's where most people would stop. But he decided to take his education into his own hands. So he moves out to Los Angeles and goes to a local community college in LA so he could sort of be around the action and then decides he's going to try to figure out how to get his own film education on his own. So have you ever been to a Universal theme park in LA? No. So, you know, Universal Studios Hollywood, this big theme park in Los Angeles, and it's connected to the film studio. And one of the rides that they've had for a long time is this tram that takes you on the back lot of the studio, and you can see where they make the movies. So they had this right even back then. So Spielberg was about 19 years old. He gets on this tram. It's going around the back lot. He jumps off, hides around the building, and the tram keeps driving. Again, I do not suggest this to anyone. You will get in a lot of trouble if you try this, but this is what he did. So he jumps off this tram, it drives away and he starts walking around the lot on his own. You know, this is his dream. He's wanted to be a director his whole life. About an hour into his self guided tour, he bumps into this older man, and this older man notices this kid with pimples on his face and says, You know, who the hell are you? And this is where integrity comes in. Spielberg told him the truth. He goes, I'm so sorry. I jumped off the tram. I- you know, no harm done. You know, I can leave if you want. My name is Steven Spielberg. I want to be a director. And the old man appreciated his honesty and started talking to him. And they talked for an hour. This older man was named Chuck Silvers. He was the head of the Universal Television Library. So he's in charge of all the archives. So he goes, listen, kid, how would you like to come back onto the lot legally the next couple of days? Spielberg goes, oh my God, that would be a dream. So Chuck Silvers writes him a pass for three days. And Spielberg comes back the first day, the second day, the third day. But then on the fourth day, he shows up to the security gate wearing a suit, you know, holding his dad's briefcase, walks up to the gate, throws an arm up in the air and goes, hey, Scotty. And the guard waves back and Spielberg walks right through. And he ends up doing this for months. He's asking directors and producers out to lunch. He's sneaking into editing bays and into sound stages. He's essentially building his own film school from scratch. Now, a few months into this, Chuck Silver slowly becomes a mentor to Spielberg. And Chuck Silvers gives him one of the best pieces of advice a mentor can ever give someone. He sits Spielberg down and says, listen, there has to be a moment in your life where you stop schmoozing and you have something of value to show people. Don't come back onto this lot until you have a short film ready to go. And Spielberg, you know, took the advice to heart, as hard as it was, and didn't come back onto the lot until a few months later when he had this 21-minute film called Amblin. And it was a short film that Spielberg made, produced, edited, all on his own. And he went back and showed it to Chuck Silvers. And it was so good that when it was done a teardrop came down Chuck Silvers' face. And Chuck Silvers reaches for the phone and immediately calls the vice president of production at Universal Television, Sid Sheinberg, and goes, Sid, I have something you got to see. And the vice president's like, look, people tell me that every day. There's things I have to see. And Chuck Silvers says, no, if you don't watch this today, someone else will. And the vice president said, you think it's that damn important? And Chuck Silvers says, yes, it's that damn important. So they hang up the phone, and then Chuck Silvers then calls the projectionist. This is back when they had projectionists in the film studios. He calls the projectionist and says, make sure this is the first thing he sees tonight. And the projectionist says, you got it. Sure enough, the vice president watches it that night. The next morning, Spielberg's in class and gets a uh, comes home and gets a call saying he needs to be in the vice president's office immediately. Spielberg rushes over to the corner office of Universal Television, And right there is a contract making him the youngest major studio director in Hollywood history. Hmm. And what I love about that story is, of course, there's no question he was incredibly talented. At the same time, though, I think we can all agree there must have been other talented people in Hollywood who didn't get their big break. So the question is, what made Spielberg at 19 able to get this big break when other talented people couldn't? And to me, I almost see it like a movie with three acts. There was, you know, Spielberg, you know, trying to get onto the lot and jumping off the tram. There was him creating that relationship with Chuck Silvers, sort of becoming like Chuck Silvers became his inside man. And then in the finale, the inside man comes through and gets Spielberg his foot in the door. And to me, it really comes down to the second part, finding your inside man, your inside person, which to me is anyone inside of the organization that you are trying to get into who believes in you enough as a person that they're willing to stake their reputation on the line to help you get in. And whether it's Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, I can go through story after story after story where there was always that inside person who helped change everything.
0: And you also, uh, part of it is you have to meet that inside person. So with Steven Spielberg, right? it doesn't land on your lap, right? Like he had to kind of do something that no other 19 year old was going to do is he took that chance of getting off the tram. And okay, you equate this with an integrity issue. I think there's a lot of gray areas where ambitious people wade through the gray and, and get to the other side. Now with you, you also had uh, your own mentor who was able to introduce you to a lot of inside people. Uh, like you reached out to this guy, Elliot Bisnow, and what made you reach out to him? How did, you know, how did that relationship start out? This guy introduced you to the entire world, basically.
1: <laughs> he would like to hear that. Uh, I'm very grateful for him. Um, that story begins where a lot of my life stories begin with me banging my head against the wall in the sense of I was a year into working on The Third Door. You know, I had this big dream to interview all these people, and I thought everybody would think it was a great idea. But to my surprise, Bill Gates and everyone else essentially told me to get lost. And I couldn't understand why I was getting rejected over and over and over again, and I had no idea what to do. And to the point where a year into the process, I even was able to get on the phone with Bill Gates as chief of staff but he essentially told me, you know, go build more momentum and call me back. And I'm like, what the fuck is momentum? Like you know, these sort of these businessy terms that don't mean anything. I had no idea what was going on. So that night I'm in my dorm room and I just so happened to come across an article on Fast Company about this cruise ship and it's called Summit at Sea and it's this cruise ship where they were gathering Richard Branson and Bill Clinton and the roots were the band by the pool and you know it was you know the founder of Tom's Shoes and Gary Vaynerchuk and all these people were going on a cruise for three days. And I'm reading this thing and like this is sort of like my book in cruise form. And I'm reading it and at the end of the article it says, you know, Summit series was created by 26 year old Elliot Bisnow. I'm thinking you know 26, that's like my cousin's age, like this is ridiculous. So, of course, I just Google Elliot Bisnow, and it felt like I was Googling the guy from Catch Me If You Can, where there were tons of things about him, but none of it made any sense. And I ended up spending hours and then eventually days glued to my computer reading everything I could about this guy. And it got to the point where I ended up, and I, it's crazy to actually think back to this. I opened up my journal and wrote at the top of the page, Dream Mentors. And on the first line, I wrote Elliot Bisnow. Now, a couple weeks later, I find myself in the library. You know, I'm still in school. I was studying for an accounting final. And, you know, I was doing what I always do right before finals. I was procrastinating. And my idea for procrastinating that day was I was like, why don't I just try to send a cold email to Elliot and just see if anything happens? because I just so desperately need to figure out what momentum is and how to get these interviews. And I had previously, as you mentioned, I had interviewed Tim Ferriss quite recently, and Tim Ferriss gave me a cold email template that he used to launch his career. So I was like, let me t- test out this Tim Ferriss cold email template. So again, I spent hours trying to find Elliot's email. I can't find that all, so I sort of guess it. I use the cold email template. And I essentially use my two weeks' worth of research on Elliot to write what I think is the best possible cold email. I send it to this email address that I don't even know if it's his. And an hour later, I get a response saying, great email, what are you doing on Thursday?
0: Okay, you have to describe describe as well as you can the, the cold email template.
1: All right, so this is the Tim Ferriss cold email template from the book. And for anyone listening who wants to cold email someone, cold DM someone, I've used this for ten years. Readers of the book have used it to reach out to the CEO of Apple, Sheryl Sandberg. I've all gotten responses. Um, Financial advisors of Merrill Lynch have been using it to close, you know, new clients. It really works, and this is how it goes. And this isn't cooking where you should add your own twists. This is baking. Follow it exactly. So it goes like this: Dear so and so, you know, first paragraph. I know you're incredibly busy, and you get a lot of emails, so this will only take 60 seconds to read. Boom, that's your whole opener, that's it. Second paragraph. One to two sentences max of who you are and why that's relevant to the person you're emailing. So that shouldn't be a copy-paste of your bio. This is a very uh, custom pair, you know, two sentences about why who you are is relevant to the person you're emailing. Boom. Third paragraph. Again, one to two sentences max of a hyper-specific question they can answer without thinking too hard. So asking what should I do with my life is a horrible question. Asking what is a book you recommend for an aspiring entrepreneur is actually a great one. And then final paragraph is the clincher. I totally understand if you're too busy to respond. Even a one or two line reply will completely make my day. All the best, Alex. So, you know, I write that all out for Elliot Bisno. He responds magically, one of the email addresses that I had guessed worked. And he says, What are you doing Thursday? So, of course, I open up my calendar and it says Thursday accounting final. So I respond back to Elliot I'm completely free. What do you have in mind? So he goes, great, before I see you, make sure you read this chapter in this book. So of course, you know, this is my dream mentor. I'm not going to read the chapter. I'm going to read the whole book. So I read the whole book. I take notes. And he wants to meet at 8 a.m., my finals at 12 p.m. What's the book, by the way? The book is called When I Stop Talking, You'll Know I'm Dead. When I Stop Talking, You Know I'm Dead by Jerry Weintraub. A plus book. Uh, one of the few books I've read multiple times because it's just so enjoyable, so wonderful. So I read read that book. I show up. Elliot's meeting is at 8 a.m. I assume it's going to be probably 10 or 15 minutes. My final's at noon. This is going to work. And he wants to meet like about an hour away from my college campus, so it all works out great. I show up, 8 a.m. Our 10 minutes turns into 15 minutes, which turns into 30 minutes. And we end up spending four hours together that morning. What I couldn't have imagined is we ended up spending the rest of the summer traveling the world together. And it's now been 10 years. And Elliot is not only one of my greatest mentors and one of my best friends, but he even was standing with me at my dad's bedside as my dad took his final breath. So he really became like a family member.
0: You know, one of the things too, and a lot of this is kind of... um there's always a little bit of a luck factor, even with all the hustling, which is that right when you decided you needed a mentor, he had previously decided he needed a mentee. He wanted to mentor.
1: That's that's exactly right. And what's crazy to make it even more wild, the email address I had sent it to was his old company that he doesn't even work at anymore. And he normally just checks that email once a month to see if anything is relevant. And I so happened to have emailed him the exact day he chose to check it. So it was the wow. very first one at the top of the inbox.
0: Then then he starts, little did you know, he decided you're going to be his mentee, and he starts introducing you to everyone, and he knew some incredible people, but he also had used this technique of, um, I, I don't know what you would call it, but maybe this is what you're referring to a little bit as as the third door, but uh, like when, when the White House asked him to put together a group of people to, talk to the president about something, all the people who had said no to him previously, he would call and say, listen, the White House is asking you to do <laughs> yeah. X, Y, and Z. And so they would all, and and, and and he would say, you can't say no to the White House. And like the, the one group that said they were too busy, he's like, no, you're not too busy for the White House. And so a little bit of this sort of like chicken before the egg thing uh, uh-huh. again happens.
1: Yeah, and I've learned with the you know greatest entrepreneurs, Again, the difference between someone being a, a fire festival con artist and someone being a great entrepreneur is actually their ability to pull through and stay true to their word at the end. Yeah. Uh, you know, every great business, again, I have examples from Bill Gates um, all the way down, you're sort of crossing your fingers. It's all going to work out and you bust your butt to stay true to your word and make it happen. Um, and Elliot's a great example of someone who sold a big dream and followed through with it.
0: And then you found kind of various mentors along the way, so, for instance, you had this opportunity to interview larry king and and Larry King before he passed away, would have breakfast every morning with his buddies. One of those buddies, a good friend of mine, uh, has, I've been on his podcast a bunch of times. He's been on mine, Cal Fussman, he spent a lot of time with you teaching you how to interview
1: that changed my life tremendously. and if I would to say a singular moment that has had one of the biggest before and after effects in my life. I would put the Elliot cold email first and then a very um, unexpected situation in a grocery store with Larry King second. Uh, And the story, again, changed my life because, again, it led to Larry and it led to Cal, which both huge before and after effects. The reason the grocery store story is my favorite is because it's one that I, you know, I can claim some credit with the Elliot one, of writing a good cold email, this one is more, even more preposterous. So the setup for this one is right before this moment. I had a disastrous situation with Warren Buffett. You know, I had been writing him letters for eight months. I went to his annual shareholders meeting and it, you know, I asked him my questions in front of 30,000 people and it completely backfired and blew up in my face. It was this giant train wreck. Um, and it was one of those moments you just sort of want to stay in bed and pull the covers over your head and just disappear from the world. And that's where this story begins. So if there is one theme of this journey, it's that when I was at my lowest points, it was always my best friends who would pull me back up. And I have this one friend by the name of Corwin. And after I spent a couple of weeks in bed, you know, sulking, he called me up and said, you know, let's go grab some lunch and talk this out. You know, I just want to get my spirits up. You know, we go to this local grocery store in Los Angeles. We get some sandwiches. We're sitting on the sidewalk watching the cars pass by. And Corrin's trying to get my energy up. He's like, dude, you know, don't you have any other interviews lined up? And I'm like, dude, I got nothing. You know, I was in a real bad mood. And he said, come on, let's say you had an interview lined up. You know, who would you want to talk to? And I said, look, man, look at what happened with Buffett. Even if I had an interview lined up, I'd probably mess that up too. And Corrin said, listen, bro, you can't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't a science, it's an art. And as we're talking about this, the single most miraculous moment of the entire journey happens. A car pulls up, parks right in front of us in the loading zone. The door swings open and out walks Larry King. Now, if you're anything like me, when things line up so perfectly like that, it's actually when I get the most nervous. And I have a name for that feeling. I call it the flinch. It's when your throat tightens up, your mouth wires shut, your feet turn to stone, you become completely paralyzed when everything you want is right in front of you. So I literally sat there on the sidewalk watching Larry King walk right past me, you know, right through the grocery store sliding doors. And I didn't say a thing. And my friend Corwin, you know, jabs his elbow into me and says, Dude, why didn't you say anything? And this is the thing about fear. Fear is very good at making logical excuses. Fear is very, very good at making logical excuses. So of course, you know, my fear came up with a good excuse. I was like, oh, he's probably, you know, deep into the grocery store now. There's no way I'll be able to find him. And Corn's like, dude, he's 80 years old. How far can he go? <laughs> so, you know, very reluctantly, I stand up off the sidewalk and I walk into this grocery store looking for Larry King. And, you know, I walk over to the bakery section. He's not there. I go over to the produce section, You know, fruits, vegetables, no Larry. And right then, I remembered he had parked in a loading zone, so he must be leaving any second now. So now I, you know, this bolt of adrenaline kicks in. I start sprinting down the aisles, looking down each one. You know, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And I cut around the frozen food section. He's not there. And I figure he's got to be at the checkout counter. So I'm sprinting down the checkout counter, looking down each one, you know, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And at that point, I wanted to kick myself because he had been right in front of me and I hadn't said a thing. So I'm walking out of this grocery store, staring down at my feet through the parking lot. And finally, I lift my head. And right there, 20 feet in front of me, is Larry King suspenders and all. And it's almost as if, again, similar to that stand moment, all this pent up frustration and rejection and anxiety started combusting inside of me. And I started yelling uncontrollably at the top of my lungs, you know, Mr. King! And the echo in the parking lot was so loud. I will always remember Larry King jumping up in the air, like turning around, every week on his face sprung back. And I didn't really know what to do. So I just sort of ran over. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Mr. King. I'm- you know, my name's Alex, I'm 20 years old, I just wanted to, you know, I just always wanted to say hi, and he goes, okay, hi, and he walks the other way. So I'm trying to think of something intelligent to say to save the situation. So, you know, I'm awkwardly following him out to his car, you know, he gets to his car, opens his trunk, stuffs his groceries in, he's opening the driver's side door, and I just look at him and I go, wait, Mr. King, can can I go to breakfast with you? And he looks at me like I'm a lunatic. But before he can respond, he looks around on the sidewalk and sees there's about a dozen people watching this go down. So for reasons I may never understand, he just shrugged his shoulders and goes, okay, okay, okay. And I'm like, oh, my God, great. You know, Thank you so much. You know, I'll see you tomorrow. And he tells me where to meet him, and he gets into the car, and he shuts the door. And I look at him, and I go, wait, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me and starts the engine. So I'm now, you know, shouting through the window, you know, Mr. King, what time? And he looks at me again, puts the car in drive. I am now flailing my arms in front of the windshield, you know, begging, you know, Mr. King, what time? And he just looks at me and goes, nine o'clock, and he speeds off. Sure enough, the next morning comes around. And I walk into this bagel restaurant in Los Angeles. And right there, corner table, is Larry King with his best friends. And I had some time the night before to reflect on how it acted the day prior. And I thought, you know, today maybe I would take a different approach and be a bit more gentle. So, you know, I'm walking over to the table and I just put a little hand up in the air and I'm like, hey, uh, good morning, Mr. King. And he just looks at me and goes, you know, mumbles me away. I'm thinking, okay, I get it. Maybe he just wants a few minutes with his friends. And when he's ready, he'll call me over. So I see there's a table next to him that's open. So I sit down at that table and I wait patiently. 10 minutes pass. 20 minutes pass. An hour passes.
0: He's still eating breakfast? (laughs) Uh,
1: They're just shooting the shit at this point now. But finally, he stands up and he starts walking toward me. You know, I can feel my cheeks lifting. And then he walks right past me and heads for the exit. And I sort of just put a hand up in the air and I go, Mr. Mr. King? And he goes, what is it, kid? What do you want? And at that point, I felt this very sharp, familiar pain in my chest. And, you know, we all know that feeling when the rejection's right around the corner. And I just looked at him and said, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face, almost as if to say, why didn't you just say so? And he ends up giving me the greatest monologue of interview advice I've heard in my entire life. And at the end, he looks up to the ceiling as if he's debating something in his mind. And then he looks me in the eyes, puts a finger in my face and goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, nine o'clock, see you here. And I show up the next morning, nine o'clock. You know, he waves me over to the table. He asks me why I even wanted to learn how to interview people. You know, I tell him about my book. He goes, all right, I'm in. And over the course of the next five years, I went to breakfast with him over 50 times. Mm. And not only did that change my life, on the second day of breakfast, Larry introduced me to someone you just mentioned, Cal Fussman. And Cal Fussman is, in addition to Larry King, one of the greatest interviewers of a generation. And Cal Fussman not only helped me learn how to interview, he helped me learn how to write. And his daughter became my goddaughter. And again, one of those moments where um, life had a very clear, almost like an earthquake, a very clear before and after.
0: And so what what was some of the advice? Did Larry give you any advice that that surprised you about interviewing?
1: Yeah, I'll say what, sh- um, what surprised me the most and that changed my style the most. It sounds simple, but it's very hard to implement. He said, and you know, he has that very I, I miss him a lot. He has this very, you know, beautiful way of talking, where he's like, listen, kid. And I will always remember him going, I already know the biggest mistake you're making. And you know, of course, I'm all ears now. He goes, I can already tell you're gonna make the same mistakes that every new interviewer at any age makes when they're starting out. And he goes to explain that every new interviewer, whether they're aware of it or not, begins by copying the styles of the interviewers they admire. So maybe you admire Oprah Winfrey, and she has these very emotional questions. Or you like Barbara Walters, who had these very strategic questions. Or maybe you like Larry King with these very simple, direct questions that everyone's curious about. And he said, that's the biggest mistake you can make because you're copying what the styles are without understanding why those styles exist. And he said the reason those styles exist is because it's taken us many years to learn what makes us the most comfortable in our chairs. And when we're comfortable in our chairs, the interviewee becomes comfortable in their chair. And that's what makes for the best interview.
0: And so what do you think, what, what did you change then? Like, what did you figure out makes you comfortable? I mean, because then you went on to interview, like we said earlier, Bill Gates and many others. What makes you comfortable?
1: My interviews really had a very stark before and after after that piece of advice. What I had to learn for myself was two things. One, I just really like knowing a lot about the person because it makes me like them more. Uh, I'm very lucky where – I didn't think of this in the beginning. I used to think I was unlucky because of this reason. But because they don't work for a media company, I'm not interviewing on behalf of CNN, I don't have an editor telling me what kind of things to get out of the person or even who to interview. I get to only interview people that I think are amazing. So, you know, for the Bill Gates interview, I'm spending three months – reading every single biography about him and writing down my favorite possible things about who he is. Even for Quincy Jones, the famous music producer, I listened to every song he had worked on every single day and I read all his biography. So I get to go really deep into these people and I get to really know, to the point where my favorite moment was when I interviewed Pitbull, the musician. I listened to every single one of his stuff, even his mixtapes before he had a record deal. And he was quoting one of his songs during our interview. I've never t- told this anyone. He was quoting one of his songs and forgot the lyrics, and I finished the lyric for him. <laughs> he looked like an elephant just walked into the – like his eyes popped out of his head, and the whole interview changed after that moment. He literally – I remember very clear. We are sitting on his balcony in Miami, and he sat back and he goes, all right, I see what's going on. And he smiled, and we just he started sharing these. he he's never shared with any interviewer before.
0: It seems like when you have that personal overlap, like in this case, your knowledge of his songs obviously overlapped with his knowledge of his songs. Or in Jessica Alba's case, she was talking about, you know, death or deaths of people close to her. You were going through your experience with your father and you were able to bring that in. And now you're connecting as human beings rather than an interviewer and interviewee. And I think that was a common theme in a lot of your interviews is when, like with Bill Gates, first you kind of asked this broad question, like, you know, how do you, how did it feel like to be... Successful or whatever, and he's giving you all these technical specs of his right. software, and but then he takes a break. You talk to the chief of staff. You're thinking about it a little more, and suddenly you're able to ask more. You're really able to ask things that were important to you, and 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 more storytelling driven as opposed to um, kind of these broad general questions. You're able to get it more personal, and and I, I wonder if that's kind of an an important, you know, yeah, quality you picked up here tremendously.
1: And even when I. You know, right now, what I spend a lot of my time doing is going and speaking at different corporations. And one of the questions I get, you know, if I'm working with executives is, you know, what are some keys to interviewing that you've learned that can help us with job hiring? And I'll tell them that Larry King advice I just told you. And I say, again, I won't name names, but one company 10 years ago became very famous by uh, grilling their potential hires by saying, how many jelly beans are in this jelly bean jar, and asking these questions that are sort of impossible and make people sweat. And I don't know why, maybe because of the press or whatever, it just sort of became viral, and a lot of people started doing things like that. I just tell these executives the same thing Larry King told me, which is when you make someone nervous, do you know what they do? They lie. When you make someone relaxed, even if The question you ask them, they don't know the answer to. They tend to go towards the truth and maybe even admit, I don't know. And he said, something that Larry King taught me that I think works really well in the business world is, what's the point of a good interview? Not to, again, in my perspective, it's not to hang someone in the town square. I I know some interviewers like to do that. For me, it's actually to really get to know the truth of that person. That's where you find the most value to me.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that philosophy. Like, sometimes I've gotten criticism because I don't do like gotcha sort of interviews with people. But what's the point of that? Like, I'm not uh, an investigative journalist. I'm not trying to get someone hated or whatever. And and people have done that to me occasionally, and I don't like it. So why would I want to make people feel uncomfortable?
1: Right, and the gotcha, it's best case scenario is you have one soundbite that's really powerful. Now- Again, we're not talking about, you know, interviewing a corrupt politician. Yeah, those people you should probably grill. Sure. But if it's actually someone you admire, which your show is people that I don't know, but you you yeah. want to talk to, the most value you can give your audience is actually for that person to be so comfortable that they actually spill the beans on how they did it. And that only happens cuz they feel comfortable talking with you.
0: And and so the bill gates interview was kind of a turning point like a mm-hmm. lot of the arc of the book is you everything you had to do along the way towards securing that bill gates interview and then it, it seems like you mentioned it wasn't quite a flood after that but it seems like you know right after that, then you get you just make some calls and maya angelou and jessica alba and lady gaga and uh quincy jones pitbull you know like how do, you, how do you get, into, or at the time, you know, how would you get in touch with Maya angel and just call her and say, hey, can I interview you? Because I think you, you skipped over that part in the book a little bit.
1: Yeah, there was um, a challenge when I was writing the book, which was, if this was a perfectly historical account, um, the book would be thousands of pages long with most of the pages with me just like crying at my desk with things not working out. So sort of by the uh, we had to stop repeating me failing over and over and over again towards the end and sort of get to the good stuff. Um, but the reality was I was shocked. Um, uh, I know it might not be shocking to someone listening who's, you know, smarter than I am. But at the time I thought just cause I interviewed Bill Gates, everyone else would want to be in it. But then Oprah said no and Spielberg said no. And I still had to find creative ways to get to these people for Spielberg. You know, I went to the south of France on a dinghy and almost died trying to deliver a letter to his yacht. And, you know, all of these, um, even with Lady Gaga, it was four days with her in Texas at the South by Southwest conference. Um, So it it still wasn't as simple. Uh, But I am grateful that some people still said yes. And you mentioned the Maya Angelou interview. And I would say to date, that was, one of the most impactful interviews that I still carry that message with
0: me to this day. And what's, what's that message? Um,
1: there was a lot. You know, for Maya Angelou, you know, all the other interviews for the book were anywhere from, you know, Bill Gates was an hour, Quincy Jones was three hours. Um, with Maya Angelou, she had just come out of the hospital. Um, So I was expecting, understandably, for her team to cancel, um, but she insisted on still doing it, but she asked it to just stay for 15 minutes um, because oxygen was hard for her. Um, First of all, that's just a testament to who she is. Hmm. And what I would find out later is that the day I interviewed her, she passed away exactly one year to that day. Hmm. Um, So it was one of her final interviews of her life, um, which I was very honored to do. Uh, there was a lot of things she said. One of them that sticks with me the most. Uh, oh, there's so many. You'll you'll appreciate this one because uh, you're a great writer. She said uh, she actually shared a Nathaniel Hawthorne quote that said, uh, "Easy reading is damn hard writing." Hmm. And every time I talk to another author and I say, "How's your book going?" and they go, "Oh my god, it's coming out of me so easily." I get a little nervous because, <laughs> you know, really yeah. good writing is just sort of pain. You want to just scrape off every single excess
0: word, particularly for a poet.
1: Yeah, if, yeah definitely.
0: I, I would say poetry is the hardest and people don't realize that, but you have to re- every word is probably a hundred times as important as a yes. word in a novel or a nonfiction book.
1: Yes. It, you need bang for your buck. Yeah. With the words. Um, something else she shared, she shared a quote from a country song. And that right. quote has stayed with me. She said, Every storm runs out of rain. Um, uh, and you know, the way my Angelo talks, she was like, Young man, I want you to write this down on a notepad and keep it on your writing desk. Every storm runs out of rain. And I've kept that and held on to that very dearly
0: and and you know i always wonder this like i've done i've done like 1300 podcasts and i've interviewed a lot of people and i sometimes try to understand but it's impossible to understand how my life has changed because of talking to all these people mm-hmm. i mean do you have any sense at all how your life has changed not from the journey but actually from achieving the goal of talking to all these people mm-hmm. like they've given you good advice has it really do you think in the times that have been hard for you Do you think this advice has qualitatively changed your life?
1: Oh, my God. I know it sounds cheesy, but, like, it's changed my life, like, more than I could say. Um, Something I think about a lot, which might sound weird to someone else, is that I am the first reader of the book. Normally, authors, you know, I'll include yourself and people like Kyle Fussman, are the experts, and they are writing their expertise that they already know down on the page. I started this book as an 18-year-old with questions. So every single interview I did, I was almost getting, uh, (laughs) a funny way to think about it is, if you buy The Third Door today, you can read it all the way through like binging a Netflix series. I was watching it the old-fashioned way, like one episode every week. And it was changing me over time and to the point where even my best friends, every week I would like show up to the dining hall or to dinner and just tell them what I learned. And you know, every all of us changed throughout the whole experience. And sometimes the changes were painful changes. Sometimes it was learning about with Warren Buffett, the dangers of over-persistence and how I got myself blacklisted. Um, Sometimes the changes were that Zuckerberg experience where they threatened to call the police on me. You know, some of them were really disastrous, uh, but some of them were really beautiful. I would say, you know, the biggest change was of course my mindset. When I started the journey... I really genuinely didn't have an answer to that big question, which is when you have a big goal, you have a big dream, but no one's taking your calls, no one's taking you seriously, how do you find a way to break through? And I would say it took me years and years of interviews to come away with the realization that Maya Angelou, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, as different as these people seem on the outside, they treated life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me is that it's like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where everybody waits in line hoping to get in. And we all see people standing in line hoping the bouncer lets them in. That's the first door. That's where 99% of people wait around. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance. But what society doesn't tell you is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, Crack open the window, go through the kitchen, there's always a way in. And whether that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software, you know, as I mentioned, how Spielberg became the youngest director, they all took that third door. And if I've learned one thing is that there's not really a way around it. If you want to achieve something, and I've actually been surprised, I used to think in the beginning that you only took the third door when you were just starting out in your career. The more I've Study this, and the more people I've gotten to know who are higher and higher up, and I got to research their stories. Oh, they're taking a good executive who's in their 60s is still finding that third door, you know, to launch a new product or uh, expand a new division. Um, So it's an ongoing process.
0: Like, what's a story you've heard recently of someone who told you something, let's say an executive or some famous person in their 50s or 60s? And they were like, that third-door concept, I just used it.
1: Oh, I got a lot. Um, I can't uh, use specific names without asking for their permission in hindsight. Um, I can say there was a speaking engagement that I did for Merrill Lynch not too long ago. During the keynote, one of the market leaders, you know the way they divide it up is by region. One of the region leaders was trying to hire someone and just couldn't even get a response from them. And during I just love because he did it literally as I was talking during the keynote, he typed out the Tim Ferriss cold email template, and then just sort of substituted his own wording in there, sent it off to the person who's been ignoring him, I guess for weeks at that point and got a response by the time my keynote was done. Mm. And again, it's it's what's funny is I go to these you know keynotes, you know, to present what I've learned, but the reality is they inform the process even more. And it's just a good reminder to me that even when you're at the top of your game, you're still looking for that creative
0: entrepreneurial way in. So now what are you doing? Are you you're basically traveling around giving keynotes, sounds like you're doing some consulting. What's These are all good things and they're all related to the the third door brand that you've created with this this really great book. I really enjoyed reading the book. What's next in terms of like a big thing you want to do? And maybe you don't know yet, but but I'm sure there's something like you can't, you're not going to spend the rest of your life giving keynote speeches about the third door. There's a next thing.
1: I'm, uh, I can't go into too many details yet, but I'm working on the second book. Um, but what I can say is what the mission is almost energetically moving forward for me. And you know, I'm curious if you had a similar experience. But something that happened unexpectedly for me, you know, during the pandemic was just because I sort of was alone a lot and sitting and staring at a wall. Um, there was a lot of time for reflection and a lot of time asking myself not only where I've been but where I want to be headed. And essentially, again, like you said, figuring out what the next chapter looks like. You know, if I've learned one thing, you know, over the past ten years. It's that you can give someone all the best tools and knowledge in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And there's this one anecdote that's just been chiseled into my mind that I keep going back to when I think about what my next projects look like. And it's this story that I read during my research of a teacher who was teaching for Teach for America She was assigned to a school in Baltimore. You know, it was a really rough part of town and a really tough school. And she was assigned to maybe third or fourth grade. And one day this teacher realized, you know, these kids need some inspiration. So she tells the kids, you know, today instead of our math lesson, we're all going to draw pictures of our biggest dream in life, what we want to be when we grow up. So she passes out the papers and the crayons. And all the kids start coloring, except for this one boy sitting in the back of the class. He won't touch the crayons. You know, his face is blank. But about five minutes later, his eyes light up and he starts coloring. At the end of the day, the teacher collects all the papers and the kids go home. And the teacher starts going through them. And she sees that the young boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man. And the teacher was very concerned. So she called the boy's mother that night. And the mother explained that she wasn't surprised. The mother explained that the only male figure in this boy's life who wasn't in jail or on drugs was his uncle who delivered pizza. And what I took away from that story is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. People will always reach for the highest branch they believe is possible. So it's our jobs whether it's schools, families or the community at large to illuminate more branches. And that's my mission moving forward.
0: That's great. Well, I can't wait to see what what happens with that mission and and what the next book is. You're a great storyteller. You're a great storyteller in the written word, but I can see now you're also a great storyteller in person. These are these have been fascinating. And Alex Benayan, you know, author of The Third Door, book so insightful. I highly recommend any, everybody read it. And I I think Entrepreneur Magazine just said it's one of the six books you have to read and keep motivated. And it's definitely a motivating book. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing these stories.
1: James, this is so fun. Thank you, man.
0: And you know, I'll just tell tell one little story. Um, The reason I reached out to you is I had written about, actually in my last book, I'd written about the Buffett's 525 rule. And a friend of mine told me, oh, Warren Buffett never said that. And I'm like, are you sure? I'm pretty sure he said that. And there's like, no, read Alex Benayan's book. He asks Warren Buffett if he had said that. And Warren Buffett's like, no. But so that's what got me <laughs> that's really funny. reading your book. And then I'm like, oh, I think I've communicated before with you. And we've had some emails or something in the past. So I reached out and, and and thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast.
1: It was such a joy. You know the book almost better than I do inside and out. So it was really fun talking with you. Hit Pitbull. <laughs>
0: All right. Thank you so much, Alex. James,
1: this is super fun. And uh, please thank Jay for me uh, as well.